0: Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. Our guest is Harvard professor Roland Fryer. He will talk about the lower level use of force by police. He's is an economist and the youngest African-American to receive tenure at Harvard. Raya applies empirical methods to social issues beyond traditional economics. I'm joined by 14 of my classmates. Anne.
1: Okay. I'm uh, class of 63, and I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm a retired academic librarian and now I'm a climate activist.
0: Now we'll go to Alden.
2: I grew up in Northwestern Connecticut, born in Mass General, actually. Uh and was in a class with these folks, then lived in DC for a few years and, and uh Flint, Michigan for a few years, and Chicago for a few years. Now live just south of San Francisco in San Mateo, California.
0: Okay, Spencer.
3: Hi, Spencer it's in sunny Florida.
4: I was a climate activist uh, like Annie and uh, glad to be here. Ezra. <laughs> right. Dr. Farah, I, I spent about 40 years at, 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 at Yale, at a professor of psychiatry and African-American studies, and uh, in my retirement now, still continuing to do some scholarly things and hanging out in New Haven.
5: Peter. Hi, hi. I'm I'm an editor and writer up in uh, the tip, northern tip of New Hampshire. Make everybody feel better. We just had three or four inches of snow, <laughs> and it's cold enough. It's staying. It's staying on the ground too. Okay, great, great. Cindy.
1: Yeah, um, I was in the class of '63. Um, my name is Allison, and, and I was have always been called Cindy. And for the last 52 years, I've been living in Italy. Um, we have a, um, um, a we have vineyards, and we've just replanted the vineyards, and so the work is going on on that. That's what we've been following. Hi,
5: uh, I'm Doug Shapiro. I uh, grew up in Houston. Uh, I'm a retired physician, behavioral ecologist, and pharmaceutical physician. Uh, I've lived in seven different countries uh, and I'm very pleased to be here. Connie.
1: Yes, I'm in New York. I'm a New Yorker born and bred. Mm. I was in Radcliffe class of 63 and then went to Harvard Law School. And now I'm happily a retired lawyer. Okay.
3: (laughs) David. Hi, I too am a class of 63 and I Grew up in South America, but spent most of my life in public broadcasting in New York with WNYT, and here in Philadelphia, where we live now, in with uh, WHYY. But Cindy, I have incredible admiration for you planting a new vineyard at, at our age. Yes, that, that yes, yeah. yeah, actually, right, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nick.
3: Uh, Nick Bancroft. My name is Nick Bancroft. I'm uh, live in Medfield, Mass, a little bit uh, south of uh, Cambridge, and uh, I'm class of '63 at Harvard. Uh, then uh, Peace Corps in India for a couple of years, and then my career has been in manufacturing and part time and uh, trust, wills, and estates. Glad to be here,
2: Jeff. Hi, I'm Jeff Fox, uh, originally from Chicago, a uh, sociologist and fiction writer, now living in Spain, where we are just having uh, some very unusual cold weather and a lot of rain. People, were, in fact, people were skiing this, uh, this past week. Oh, wow. Not, Not right here, but in, uh, a little north of us.
1: Global climate change.
2: <laughs> yeah. Jason. Yeah. Uh, my name is Mason Morfitt. I'm currently uh, calling from Florida. I'll be migrating soon back north out of the jurisdiction of our Mickey Mouse, uh, Florida governor. Um, <laughs> and I hope the snow was melted by the time I got there.
0: Okay, Marcy.
1: Um, <clears throat> living and working in New York City. Uh, spent my life uh, collecting documents <laughs> and <laughs> now being archived and um, fighting against disinformation for better evidence for public policies and better public policies and public spending priorities.
0: Okay. And our guest is Professor Roland uh, Fryer from uh, Harvard. And uh, welcome. And first off, tell us your reaction to the committee report dealing with Harvard and the legacy of slavery. What do you think about it? And what are they saying about it up in Cambridge?
6: Sure. Um, But first, let me just say uh, thank you, uh, Kent, and everyone else for having me. Uh, I appreciated the the reach out. And I'm looking forward to today. And as typical with most Harvard events. I'm the least distinguished person on this call uh so it's very very interesting to to meet all of you um particularly the ones in florida because I'm, I'm very jealous in any event uh the committee report um i have to be honest i haven't read it uh i i have been inundated by other people's opinions of it um but i have not uh formed a a reasonable enough opinion of it uh, i asked my students last night i had my last class, I'm teaching a class entitled Profiles of Black Genius, which is um, my favorite class here at Harvard to teach. I hope we get into that. <clears throat> and I asked them what they thought about it. And I, I, uh, their views ranged from uh, something similar to, to your uh, email thread, which is something like add a zero, uh, then we'll talk. Uh, they thought $100 million was uh, not a lot of money. Uh, to others just thinking it was pure virtue signaling and it had nothing to do with them. Um, And so, you know, I have been, uh, I guess I'm more worried about how the actions of um, our higher ed institutions now are going to look in 50 years than I am uh, about things that happened in 1700, uh, although I, I love history. But I think, though, I, you know, there are things going on on campuses now and um, that I'm more worried about than that. I'll, I'll put it that way. And that, that not a lot of light is being shined on. And um, I, I worry about those things. I'm really focused on how to increase mobility in disadvantaged neighborhoods that are mainly black and brown. And uh, the Harvard report doesn't doesn't do a lot for that we'll start with teaching. One of the things that I'm, that's really important to me is diversifying the, the types of students uh, on race, but also on social background who choose uh, economics, computer science, et cetera, as a major. Um, very important to me to ensure that we have uh, different types of perspectives when it comes to these analytical sciences. So um, for years, I taught a course called Race in America and a hundred students would show up. Uh, I'd say 15 would be black on the first day. And I would arrogantly slap up a bunch of equations, to kind of say, if you don't know this, this is not the class for you, which is uh, typical of professors, I guess. And the next day, 80 students would show up and only three or four of of the black students would show up. And again, for a decade, this happened. And I didn't know why. I didn't really investigate why. I was frustrated with why. And I just assumed that, uh, you know, it was the technical stuff that that, that scared people off. And then I had uh, my first daughter, her name is Eleanor. And I watched how she went through preschool and schools. And this will sound naive and silly to some of you, but it was a revelation to me that what you teach really matters. And the, and the examples that you use really matter. I was on the Massachusetts State School Board and so every kid in Massachusetts in second grade has to learn about kings and queens. Uh, I don't think there's a school in Massachusetts that I know about that doesn't teach about European kings and queens, very few from oh. Africa. Oh,
1: kings, yeah, kings, kings and
6: queens? Yes, yes ma'am, kings and queens. <laughs>
1: yeah.
6: Ah, okay. Great, so it's, they're, they're choices that matter we, in, in literature. You know, I don't know. I think a lot of schools read Leaves of Grass, Walt Whitman, perfectly fine book. But there, you know, there's Toni Morrison. There are other things that matter that that are equally excellent and speak to others, uh, speak to different backgrounds, and include different types of people. And so, I completely changed this course. Kind of, <laughs> I kept eighty-five to ninety percent of the math the same, but. I changed it from Race in America to Profiles of Black Geniuses. And we talk about the obvious ones like The Boys and MLK and Malcolm X, but we talk about some non-obvious ones like Ida B. Wells and Mary mcleod Bethune and others. And uh, I taught this for the first time a few years ago, and lo and behold, 90 students show up on the first day and half of them are Black, and they all stayed. And they were willing to engage with the technical topics because they felt like their experience could help them through it. So I didn't do, I didn't change any math at all. all what I did was actually add reading, <laughs> didn't subtract anything. And um, and and so the only point is that again, how we teach, the examples we use, how we curate, and you know, we don't have to teach. Um, optimization or indifference curves using guns and butter right that's kind of a silly example Um, i teach distributions looking at slave productivity Uh then minority students are like wow that's interesting that slave is more productive than that slave by this amount whoa how much variance is there in there professor Fryer, i mean they're they're into the subject Uh great and so um Uh, that's what's going on uh, for me and the things that I'm interested in in terms of teaching. um, uh, You know, I just finished that course. And in terms of research, you know, there's a lot of things. There's, uh, I've been fascinated, as you know, for two decades about education and how we can use education to increase economic mobility. Um, my, My current focus is on economic mobility. So one of the things that we've recently done was something really simple, you know, if my grandmother was still alive, she always would roll my eyes when i tell her what I was working on because she thought it was so silly. Um, And one of the things that we did is we just looked at a thousand people who all were born into poverty. And let's say, I'm picking a number off the top of my head, 30% escape poverty by the time they're 40. The question we asked was, what's different about those who escaped poverty, right? So, but we went into these people's homes and we spent three and four hours with these families talking about the types of things that happened in their childhood the types of things happened in their adolescence et cetera. Et cetera. we gave them a battery of kind of psychological um uh assessments like grit and resilience and locus of control uh we asked them about their uh, it, uh their uh, interactions with police we asked them where they're adults, they could count on when they were kids, if they needed $250, could they actually get it, to get at their credit constraints? I could go on and on. You get the idea. And what we found from that was that number one thing in terms of predicting mobility is education. Great. I'm glad I didn't waste 20 years of my life. That, that's helpful. Um, <laughs> but numbers two through 10, I'd say six of those are, are have to do with... Uh, psychological capital, like resilience and locus of control and things like that. Uh, Negative interactions with police are a real mobility killer, right? Which is what I was trying to get at uh, in my research on police when I was focusing on lower level uses of force that happen thousands and thousands of times per day and don't get enough attention. So uh, general mobility is, is, is what I'm interested in. And how we can create what this research showed me is yes, education is important, but ecosystems around our young people are uh, equally important. So education is number one, but two through 10 can be described as an ecosystem that we put them around. So I'm a huge fan of Jeff Canada and the Harlem children's zone. And I have uh, been mentored and learned from Jeff for uh, more than a decade. And this is in some sense, putting a little bit more rigor and statistics around some of the ideas that Jeff has been promoting for over 30
1: years. Can I ask, you, can I ask a question? Uh, I have two of things, course. I guess. First, I'd like to hear more about the particulars of how the police interaction uh, damaged people. But second, I would have said that the key factor in success is having a supportive and reliable um, e- e- uh, person in your adult in your life um I, I don't know have you heard of the children's storefront it's a little bit um it's a, it was a school in harlem and i mentored there and what i could see from those kids they they were totally different from you know this sort of oppressed looking kids uh, ghetto kids on the street and they all had interested mothers fathers or grandparents and mm. it's that was the key now that may lead to the education so that you know the they're tied in but that really seemed the most important to me but i would also like to hear about the police a little bit more sure. Sure.
6: in terms of the adults um uh, you're right uh, complicated to 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 delineate the kind of independent contribution of the adult because it goes it goes through the resilience it goes through education it goes through all of those things even still, right, when you account for all of those things, the adult piece still uh, is significant and important, and it's in our top 10 of things, right? Mm-hmm. So we collected 500 variables on families. Having an adult you could count on was in our top 10. Not number one, but in the top 10. Uh, in terms of um, uh, police, uh, we can talk about this forever. Uh, there, My paper was kind of split into two parts. Uh, One part that some people thought were, uh, one part that offended some but not others and the other part that offended the opposite but not the other. So let's start with the beginning. Uh, What I wanted to understand was how large are the racial differences in what I would consider everyday use of force. So putting your hands on a subject, throwing them up against a car, um, drawing your weapon if you're a police officer, even if you don't shoot things like that, hitting them with, a, with a, a baton. Because those types of uses of force, again, as I said before, happen thousands of times per day. Um, and so on those uses of force, if you use any use of force, okay. Uh, and by the way, let me just put this. That data is really hard to come by because if those types of lower level uses of force happen in the process of, of arresting someone, they're never recorded. Okay, so there needs to be a specific data set that captures that. And we found millions of observations that that. Okay. And what we found was that uh, black people are in any given interaction, 54% more likely to have force used on them. That's in the raw data. More interestingly, no matter what you account for, you can get that 54% to go down to 10 or 15%, but you cannot get it to go away. And the most important statistic, in my opinion, was that even when we looked at folks who the police themselves said they were fully compliant and did everything they asked them to do, the use of force was 25% more likely to be on black. That, to me, is the most important result in the entire paper. Uh, and for the life of me, uh, I can't quite understand, although I, I, I do, but it's annoys me that that has not received more media coverage, uh-huh. because that is extremely important. And people are like, oh, Roland's naive. He He's using police data that police collected. Yes, but if it still shows a disparity and the police are the ones who collected it, like, come on now, right? Uh, uh, in particular, when it comes to compliance, if the police themselves <laughs> say you were compliant, right, and we're still finding 25%. Now, in fairness, folks may say, well, Roland it might be 53%, not 25. Fair, but 25 is enough to have a full movement and, and mobilize to eliminate that 25%. Right. Okay, how, that's, how point, you, that's point one, go ahead. Well, I had a
2: question. H- how did you even get the data on, the, on these low level um, use of force? Uh, it's not recorded. Um, what kind of observations did you have?
6: Yeah it came from multiple sources. One of the first things I did, uh, is, um, let me just back up when it comes to social science, I pride myself not on being the, the smartest and most clever in the room, but being the most grounded in reality in the room. And so, um, as I started on police, my, my own personal view of the police is I can't stand them. Uh, they took half my family away when I was a kid, man. I was, you know, whatever, 12 years old. And I watched half my family walk out of the door with, you know, handcuffs. Uh, you know, my father went to prison. Like every, Literally, nearly everyone I know has a negative interaction with police, so I don't like them. Uh, and I realized that was going to have bias in my analysis, potentially. So I said, you know what? Maybe I should actually go figure out what the police think they're doing. So I embedded myself in police departments. That's a long way of saying that. Uh, my first police department I did this with was Camden. I suggest everybody go ride along for a couple of days with police departments. I do not suggest Camden. it was wild. Um, so we I did this in Camden, I did this in Houston. I did this at a at a police force here in Massachusetts. I went around and embedded myself in these places for days and built trust, and that's how I was able to obtain data wow. um, so that way. Okay. So you know, you go to one police department, they like you, they say, Oh, you should call my friend Narrows, and he's got really great data. you kind of get the idea Just Do they around.
1: collect the data themselves in some Yes they do. A lot of them do. Way? Yes, they do. They do?
6: Okay. Yeah. So for example, the, the 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 Chicago Police Department collects data on every single contact that they have with civilians. Tons of data. Right. Um You know, New York City, when they did stop and frisk for all those years, collected millions of data points per year on every time they pulled someone over and they have use of force. Um, Turns out when you sleuth around enough, you realize that the Department of Justice also every other year does a police public contact survey. And this actually they just randomly sample people in the population and ask, did you have an interaction with police in the last 12 months? And if so, tell us about it. Okay, so that's data that we use that doesn't rely on on police records. So yes, if you if you get your hands dirty enough, there's a lot of data out there yeah. um, that one can use. And so that was the first part of the paper, and then the second part um, uh, is was about uh, lethal uses of force. So it was an extension of non-lethal uses, but it was lethal uses. And so that is. Uh, uh, less representative because we, I think we have 18 cities or something like that, but we have cities like Houston and Jacksonville and other places like that, which a priori, I would have assumed had a lot of, a huge racial difference in, in police shootings, in places like Dallas, Texas. Um, and what we found there is, is that we couldn't find racial differences in lethal shootings of suspects. Uh, what folks have to remember, which everyone seems to not remember, is that the vast majority of police shootings don't happen like we see them on TV. What we see on TV is stuff like Laquan McDonald, where uh, a suspect is walking away from police. You know, Maybe he's not following the instructions perfectly or whatever, but the person's kind of walking away and, and it's not a threat to police and the police do something absolutely horrific and gun them down. That's awful and we've seen 12, 15, 20, I don't know how many videos, how many ever it is, it's too much, they're crazy. Um, most police shootings are someone called 911 because of the robbery in progress, the police come and there's a shootout, okay? That is where more than 80% of the data lie. So if that's true, then it's not kind of not as surprising that we didn't find racial differences in, um, at the mean in shootings. Now, whether or not there's racial differences in the most egregious uh, shootings in the country, I don't know. It very well could be. That's, that would be my personal view, but I don't have any statistics on it. So those are the two pieces of, uh, of that paper. And, um, you know, the, the response was, you know, uh, overwhelming. And from an academic perspective, it was great. There was a lot of discussion about it. Uh, from a personal perspective, it was awful because you know I had a seven-day-old daughter and I was under 24-hour police protection. Um, but the the most important piece of that to me is that, um, of course, Black lives matter. I mean, we don't even say that. I mean, it's just silly. But also, Black dignity matters, and I believe that um, the thousands of lower level uses of force that happen um every day are the things that are eroding trust with police i mean it's Bayesian; it's, it's the only rational thing to think that the shootings are biased because everything but the shootings are biased right and so if i hear that two blocks away uh in daytona beach florida where i spent a lot of my youth was a police shooting I would assume it's biased of course because I got roughed up by the police three days ago of course it was biased so I don't I don't I think that is eating away at it and in fact in a very long conversation with President Obama when he was in office we, we spent five hours together about police use of force Al Sharpton said look we'd be willing to talk to you about the controversial shooting if you weren't if there were all these other incidences of use of the force that happen on a day-to-day basis. And I thought that was a, uh, uh, you know, I'd, I'd never, <laughs> I'd never agreed with Al Sharpton more, I'll put it that way. Um, but, but that, th- those are the kinds of things, and when it comes to, uh, at least the start, I'll, I'll stop there and answer
4: any questions, police that, that I think are very important. I am I'm not sure I followed the last statement about uh, Sharpton.
6: The, the, the basic idea is there are many shootings that um, are controversial, that, that, that we don't know what the officer saw. We don't know if the officer saw, thought they had a gun or what have you. And what Al Sharpton was trying to say, which I agreed with, is if we had actual trust in the community, between the community and police officers because there weren't all these lower level uses of forces where we know there's bias and we know statistically there's bias. It's hard to believe the the controversial cases when we know there's bias in the lower level uses of the force. That's that's what he was trying to say. In other words, one of the things that we could do to build trust between law enforcement and the community is to stop the lower level uses of the force that happen every single day. I see.
1: But that would be changing the whole mentality of the police. So, of course, that would, would solve the problem. Uh,
6: it, would, it would change a lot. Uh, yeah. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know if it's the whole mentality. I, I don't know how to think about well, that. Yeah, but, but it definitely would change odd. a lot.
1: Yeah. That's a huge difference to change yeah, that. it's kind. a huge difference. Huge. Well, that's what
6: I've been arguing for, is that that's where we should concentrate. Because at least to start, that's a start. Because... A lot of times if you talk to police and you say, well, and they know, "Oh, my life is in danger," but, but when you just rough up a, 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 a black kid because they're not doing what you want, your life is not in danger. So maybe that's, that's a way. If we had disincentives, right? Again, I spent a lot of hours, a lot and a lot of hours with police officers, and it's almost like a mantra um, that they learn somewhere in the academy you know, if you ask them about police shootings, they turn, you know, earnest and say, you know, look, discharging your weapon is a life-changing event. I've heard that over and over and over again. Discharging your weapon is a life-changing event. I have never, not once, heard throwing a black kid up against a wall as a life-changing event. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no disincentive, I don't see the disincentives. And so until we collect more systematic data on that, and, shine some light on those lower level uses of force, right? Why can't we tie police funding to actually collecting the right data so that uh, we can disincentivize this behavior? Until we do that, I agree with you, it's gonna be really hard to even think about things where people feel like they're under threat.
1: Yeah, exactly. I had
6: someone, after we released our police papers, someone I know relatively well sent me a note and said, huh, well, if they're not shooting anyone, I don't see the big deal, and I said, "Well, okay. How about I come to your house and throw you up against the wall?" I mean, like no one wants that on their afternoon. <laughs> like it's not, and it also erodes real trust, right? Um, it it. When I talk to kids in 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 Harlem and elsewhere, and I ask them, "Is the world fixed? Is it is it is it fair? Does effort matter?" Every single time, they bring up police use of force as a counterexample that effort matters, right? Why would I want to do well in school if I can't even get home safe by my own police? So I view this as a bad equilibrium, sorry to be such an economist, in which, you know, we have to break out of it in order for um, lots of things that we want to accomplish policy-wise to make any rational sense. Uh,
2: In terms of causality, why why do they throw people up against, why do they throw more black people up against the wall than white people?
6: Wh- why do they?
1: Yeah.
6: Uh, well, I did a bunch of statistical tests and and, and my view is it's just good old-fashioned bias. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah.
6: Because if it were information problem, if it were, hey, I'm worried that this person is going to act in a certain way that's going to put me under threat, then what when we accounted for the fact that the police themselves say they did everything they asked them to do and they weren't arrested because they didn't find anything. If all of that were true, then in those particular cases, you'd find no racial bias or no racial difference. What you do is you find a 25% racial difference. Even in those situations, they weren't <laughs> arrested. They found no contraband. They did everything the police said and they're still 25% more likely to be pushed up, be thrown up against the wall. That, Uh, And there are other bias tests, too. But our our view was this is really just a preference.
3: Isn't the first um, objective of an arrest or what might lead to an arrest is take control of the situation, I believe they say, in police forces. So you come into a situation and you take control of it. Um, If that's the case... I guess my question is, does it matter whether the police officer is white or black? Do you see the same approach, whether white or black, taking control of the situation? Uh, And perhaps dignity, whether the uh, person, the subject is uh, white or black, uh, it can be on the scale of brutality from not brutal to uh, throw them up against the wall. And it may be a personal thing with the officer. Or is it systemic with the approach of policing? It's not just walk down the beat and say hi to your neighbor as you're going and doing that sort of thing. It's much more aggressive. So is it a systemic problem? I think it so.
6: I, I, it, it is. It is. I don't know about um, taking control of the situation. because We didn't collect data on that, but I will tell you that the, this behavior is independent of the race of the officer.
3: Independent yeah. of the race. Yeah,
6: of course. And I, I think, can just tell you anecdotally, when I was a kid, I mean, black police officers were the ones I was the most scared of because like, I didn't want them to have to prove to their white police. <laughs> I don't know what they were, so <laughs> we were scared of it. Uh, but no, there's no, there's no statistical difference between white and black I think the
1: officers. key thing is what is taking control of the situation? If you're dealing with a white man in a suit, you take control of the situation by saying, excuse me, sir, Mm. that's taking control of the situation. If it's a young black kid, you throw him against the wall. I mean, that very uh, concept ignores the ignores how you you size up the situation. Young black guys are threatening to white people usually, and to black people too, I guess. (laughs) um and and that causes a whole different response
6: but again i will say even when people are compliant so if they're compliant i'm not sure what situation you're taking control of maybe you show up and just throw them up against the wall then say oh please do what i want but again even when they're perfectly compliant there's a large racial difference so those those things are hard to explain away
0: and so you're so uh, Roland, your your low level data has not been accepted by the media or reported on. Is that what's your sense of that?
6: No, they've reported on it, but it's not as sexy as as the right. uh, as the police shootings. Right. Like, in fact, that's why I wrote. I never write op eds because I always think of myself as keeping my lab coat on. Uh, I'm a scientist scientist. But but. Uh, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal explaining the findings precisely because of this, because I wanted more attention on the lower-level uses of force. Again, they happen. Shootings are awful, awful. They should happen way less, right? Like I wasn't looking at the frequency of shootings and how many we should have. That's that's outside the purview. I was looking at racial differences in shootings. Um, But what I do know is that the frequency of the lower level uses of force, they just happen all the time. There's not a Black man I know who hasn't had a negative interaction with the police, period, the end.
1: I think we just have to understand that it's not shocking. All of us are complicit in that attitude that you should throw a Black person against the wall. It's not shocking to hear that or see that. Now, when you actually kill somebody, that is shocking. But I think you've got, I mean, to me, we're all complicit. We kind of understand, um, uh, uh, tacit- tacitly understand wh- why they're doing it.
0: Well, and that's you, why yeah, I it's agree, very I, hard. I, I,
1: I think all of us are, are, are sort of agree with them in some way, which is why it's hard to get any sort of um, a shocked reaction.
6: Well, the police were shocked. They didn't like it, and uh, <laughs> they
1: don't like it because you're, like it you're pointing it out, and they could get into trouble.
6: I'll never forget what I got a call from a police chief there. Now, when you say um, uh, police use of force, use the force, do you mean response to resistance? And I was like, "Whoa, that's I don't know, something scares me about that whole that whole framing of the problem." Um, but yeah, you, you know, there, there's certainly. Um, I have certainly anecdotal evidence. The way you said is right. Right when the New York Times covered this, the first thing the reporter said about the lower level uses of the force was, you know, well, that's not interesting. We we all knew that, as if it were not, you know, not even worthy of reporting. And of course, then the the, the headline is only about the shootings and not the other piece, right. right? And I have been for years, for five, six years now, arguing about black dignity and about what it feels like to we're all trying to understand you know, optimal investments and human capital and all these other things. How much should I do? You know, it, It's really hard. There's spillovers to other parts of life. How could I, uh, only an irrational person would think that the labor market is fair if the police aren't.
2: Roland, <laughs> you, you, say, you say this is general. It doesn't matter the Black officers, white officers. I presume Latino or Asian officers also. Uh, 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 so you're talking about don't, don't have enough
6: data don't yeah. have
2: enough data on on those well but it, would, it would be interesting to, but if you get into that but so what what can be done what do you have what do you propose to uh, you have to, to you change police education somehow well,
0: yeah a,
6: i mean i don't i don't think there's a I, I think there's not a 100% solution there's probably 101% solutions here like most most things uh uh, I think Marcy would probably agree with that, um, that, and, you know, I think a couple things, one, you, you, you can't fix what you don't measure. So we need to do that. Right. Um, that's mm-hmm. number one. Um, <clears throat> I feel very strongly about that. Number two, we've got to, once we measure it, we have to provide disincentives for this behavior
2: uh-huh.
6: right now. We don't right now, if you, if you shoot if you discharge your weapon in front of a crowd with tv cameras and it's a known terrorist you still have an investigation and you're still off the beat for six months if you throw a black kid up against a car like you're back you're hanging out the neck you're hanging out in 20 minutes right mm-hmm. and so they're just not the same disincentives and three and this is speculative through kind of my own sleuthing around police departments so i don't have data on this but My sense is how we recruit matters, right? Is the job about busting down doors or is the job doing something else, right? And so the types of people who are drawn to policing could be very different based on how we're recruiting. Fourth thing is, and this is getting a little sci-fi, but one of the things that I'm really interested in working on is using insights from uh, artificial intelligence and uh, deep learning to um generate software that can serve as really smart body camps, right so uh permit me 30 seconds or so it, 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 we got the smartest some of the smartest minds in the world right now working on autonomous vehicles right that's a really hard but pretty structured problem they drive millions of miles they take tons of pictures someone codes them up and they build models to try to understand you know objects in the environment and how these cars should operate Why can't we do something similar for body cams, right? The body cams right now are like web 1.0. Why aren't we using some of our sophisticated analytics to create body cams that can essentially be an unbiased partner for the police officer? The smart body cams, a much harder problem because you could be in the woods, you could be on the road, you can be in lots of different places, how to process that visually using computer vision much more difficult. But the smart body cams don't have to have an opinion all the time, cars do, right? If the autonomous cars (laughs) don't know what to do, we're in a lot of trouble. This can just be support for officers. And then we can, for lack of better terms, contract on that, right? If you did something when you were told it was the opposite, that is something we can can really come down hard on. And so I think really getting to the frontier of data and analytics, and is there any better problem besides policing to apply them to? I don't think so right but we're applying them to cars and things like that so that's
5: one of the things that I'm working on that I'm
4: most excited about sounds like
2: a really good idea the body
5: can.
4: so so how, I mean I want to
5: fix them but so what what do you think of and uh how does it how how does it complicate matters to have these philosophies of of broken windows policing and stop and frisk and I think Eric Adams is under some pressure to bring that sort of thing back again?
6: Yeah, it's really hard because, you know, what people are doing is correlating a policy with uh, results that they think uh, were helpful and, other, and trying to use the timing of when it was introduced to try to argue that these things were the main thing. But as we know, in New York, lots of things were going on at those times, so it's really hard to disentangle. Um, I do believe that police pulling back which has happened since George Floyd, does nothing but cost black lives. Uh, I think this idea that kicking the police out of our most blighted neighborhoods is foolish. Mm-hmm. I think I've never met a grandmother in these neighborhoods like my own who wanted the police to leave. They wanted the police to be reformed, but they wanted the police. Right. We need police in these areas. Okay, and so the question becomes, how do we make policing better? I, I, you know, I'm not convinced that the only way to ensure um, low crime is to have, uh, broken windows is different, that's something slightly different, but is to have the kind of stop and frisk type policy. But it could be that it is, I don't know. And if it is, that's a discussion we ought to have. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but it's one we ought to be willing to have. Um, you know, in Chicago, I wish I had my, I have slides, but I, I, don't, I don't want to try to dig through them to find them up. But what, we've, what we showed in Chicago is that, the, you know, they announced an investigation in Chicago into the police department. Chicago, as I said earlier, collects data on individual civilian contacts, right? Um, this type of proactive policing. Do you, it's one in the morning, there's some dudes in an alley. Do you go up and say something or do you drive by? Okay, that type of policing. Uh, And what we found in Chicago is that one, like the month before uh, they investigated, uh, let's say they had 100 contacts. The month after the investigation was uh, announced, they had 11. There was an 89 percent drop in the amount of kind of voluntary police civilian contact. Yes, of course, the police still responded to 911 and the response times were still the same, but this proactive policing, Peter, that you're describing, or at least related to what you're describing, went down 89%. And you know what? Crime went way up, okay? Now that's not proof of broken windows or stop and frisk, but it is proof that We have to do police reform with the police and not to the police because all this virtue signaling and thumping our chest and to hell with the police, you know what, that's cool maybe in Cambridge or in New Haven, maybe not even in New Haven, but like that's fine among the elite. But the people who suffer are the ones who we're purportedly worried about. Uh And so we gotta be really careful because these communities, it's complicated. Yes, the police need reform, for sure. No doubt about that. Absolutely zero doubt about that. How to do it is more complicated, and we ought to proceed with caution. We, we ought to be deliberate, but we need to proceed with caution because, again, we can go in thumping our chest and go home to our safe suburban communities, but when the police don't, um, aren't uh, uh, doing their jobs, then the people that suffer um, uh, are more likely to be black people right i
4: have I have a question uh, uh, Roland uh, have you have you uh, maintained or developed connections with uh, with international police forces in terms of how they think about this i mean for example even my unstructured, obviously unstructured uh, observations in a country like France, I get the impression that the ritual of interaction between the policeman and a citizen, the rituals that you can see, you can observe that are fundamentally different. Uh, for example, they they will see you coming and they salute. Very 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 different approach to the interaction. Also, I have not seen the the uh, repeated constant habit in the U.S., uh, where in France you see three and four policemen walking around um, together uh, throughout throughout different neighborhoods. And that's a pretty routine thing. Sometimes they have military who are on their two-year obligation to serve embedded, uh, you know, with two other policemen. So you've got four people. And again, the interaction seems to me to be um, reflecting a, a kind of respect for the citizen and the, the discourse, the interaction—it's just, it's just, um, just observably very different. The, the, the other question that I tell you, I'd raise—I I, I grew up in Barretos, and, and and there, you know, they they still don't have a routine thing of all the policemen carrying weapons, carrying guns. I, should, I and I, I correct myself in terms of language because they at night they might carry a, a baton, which 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 of course is there for the self defense. But the use of weapons as a as a part of the uniform is not uh, constant and and uh, the way same way it is in, in the American culture, which means which means whenever I visit Barbados, I'm struck uh, and I'm raising this as an example because there too it's a, it's an all black practically all black culture. And I wonder, I wonder if that impacts, uh, in, in, impacts the relationship and, and whether the, the, it, there's a differentiation in the psychological framework or, you know, in people's heads, or how they come to the interaction or, or um, j- just, just the fact that there are four people together in uniform, that, that people don't wanna tackle them in, in, a, in any kind of physical way because you've gotta be pretty organized in order to overcome the four people. While the business are walking around in New York City and a uniformed policeman is on the block by himself, I, I think the, the potential for caustic interactions seems to me higher than if you, you, you come around the block and but you're looking at four uniformed policemen who are there ready and, and people don't, they aren't ready for anything. Now, now my question that doesn't address of course um, the observation everybody knows about that there are definable neighborhoods in France that are what we call immigrant neighborhoods. And there, the interactions are just definably caustic and, and, and provocative. And uh, most, most of the observations say pretty clearly that it's not only the police, the police group being provocative, but the citizens there being provocative. But I don't want to talk about that part because I, I, it's, pretty, it's pretty clear but that's like, well, it's an exception in the sense that, that it's, it's just very different from the interactions yeah. you get outside the neighborhoods. And nobody knows anything about how to deal with the problem uh, of, of these specific neighborhoods. Yeah. But, but, what do you, but what do you think about, about what's going on internationally in, in these other cultures?
6: Yeah, I have. And I have uh, talked to police in Vienna and, and Cologne and uh, in, in Paris. Uh, the Paris was Paris was the most fun because if, uh, I think you got a race problem. What race problem? We don't measure that. Uh, <laughs> it's like okay, but but we
4: all do. No, I I, yeah. I know they have a race problem. <laughs> I, I know they have a race problem. I know I know <laughs> the neighborhoods, but I'll leave few, that out for
6: a minute. I will. A few observations, Ezra. Number one, uh, I'm just three points, and then I'll, and I'll I'll fill out the observations. Um, the level of inequality in America is different than in Europe. The social safety net is different. I Number see. two, the prevalence of guns is very different. Very, very different. Okay. And third, what you pointed out is really important. Okay. And we have that kind of variation even here in America. If you go to um, Camden, they've they done community policing, they walk a beat. Okay. So, you know, I'm embedded in Camden. And we're sitting on a, on a street corner in one of the worst neighborhoods in Camden. And someone comes around. And I think they're pretty much wilding out. And I'm looking at the police officers and going, why don't, why don't you tackling this person? something? Because when I act like that way, I get tackled. And, and they look at me and say, oh, Professor, that's just Johnny. He's being Johnny. Right. The only way to know that is to be in that neighborhood on a repeated basis and understand that behavior is not a threat.
4: Right. right.
6: Juxtapose that with Houston. When the police officer picked me up for our, we, we did a double shift in Houston, 16 hours overnight, okay? Started at, at, at five o'clock in the morning, or sorry, uh, started like three o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he shows up and I thought we were going to Iraq. He's got the vest, he's got guns everywhere. In the panel of the, the, the car, there's, there, there are weapons you know, he, we 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 get in and we go to the first the first stop. He says, we got We got to have a, a, a pre-dinner snack. He calls the policeman's diet. We get Red Bull and Chex Mix. And I make a point to never, ever judge anyone ever in general. I try not to, but certainly not when I'm in the field. And but I had to say something. So I said, you know, I don't know, man. You seem armed to the T, bro. Should we be drinking Red Bull? <laughs> I just don't know. I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist, but come on, brother, right? And so and, and his response was, it's sugar-free. I had no idea. I still today don't know what he meant, but whatever. So we're, we're driving around, right? And I'm embarrassed to tell you, Ezra, but I'll tell you the truth, because that's what I'm about. Like, after two or three hours driving around like an Uber driver, you start to see criminals, man. It, it happens so fast. Houston's huge, you have a district that you're patrolling, but you just ride around looking for bad guys, right? Whereas in Camden, you walk the street, you know the people, you're talking, you're having conversations, you might help someone carry their groceries home. It's a different interaction. You get to see people in the fullness of humanity in Camden. And in Houston, we see everybody on the worst day of that year, right? So we show up to a Wendy's because they've called the police. we show up to Wendy's because somebody didn't get the right check and they threatened to kill everybody in Wendy's so we got to go to Wendy's so we go to Wendy's and we show up and the first thing the manager do is come out and says we called you three hours ago and starts cursing out the police officer right like now now he's all all upset etc then we make a stop why do we make a stop because they're running every every license plate that they go by and he's I said well why are we stopping them man they didn't do anything he says well that license plate is supposed to be on a motorcycle and that ain't no motorcycle. So let's stop. Uh, and we did that. And he gets out, and I've never seen a human being more afraid. And so I asked him, I said, man, when you got out of the car. I don't mean to be flippant, but you seem pretty scared. you were taken very deliberate steps. You got your gun. You got your hand on your gun. What do you-? He says, man, this is Houston. Everybody's got a everybody. gun. And so if that's the view, right? Look, I went into this. I, I have. Uh, spent lots of time in Europe and lived in, in Spain for a while. I had the view that you know, they should do like the German police officer, shoot in the air, let them know you're serious. And there's well, something like that, you know, or, or I had also the naive view. Maybe we should just shoot them in the leg, right? First of all, police officers are terrible shots, so that's never going to work. But, but um, you know, I got the date on that. They are really terrible shots. But the, the, the thing is they are scared. And in places like Texas, where I uh, spent a lot, large portion of my childhood, they really do believe everybody, they act as though everybody has guns. And that, I think, sorry, I have to be so long-winded, is one of the fundamental differences between what you described and the reality of places like Houston, Texas. If we can get all the guns off the street, I think you could, you could start to have a different conversation, but yeah. no police officer wants to be the first one showing up with a, <laughs> with, with a water pistol.
5: Doug. So uh, a couple of days ago, I uh, paid $25 to the University of Chicago Press. I got a copy of your 2019 article and spent some time uh, going through this. And first of all, I kind of want to congratulate you. It seems to me that what you've done is a sort of Herculean effort. And I'm amazed at how much data you were able to get and to analyze uh, uh, in the detail that you were able to. But I, I would like to ask one technical question and then uh, make a, ask you to, to expand on uh, one of your thoughts at the very end of the paper. And the technical question is that you did all of these statistical analyses comparing the use of force uh, uh, versus Hispanics and blacks and others. Uh, and you have a huge amount of data that you've analyzed And most of what you looked at or found was that what looked like interesting findings were comparisons that differed at a statistical level, which was less than or equal to to 0.1. And my question is that in the natural sciences, uh, that wouldn't be considered to be a significant difference that uh, one would base their conclusions on uh, and yet, you were able to do that. In, in the natural sciences or in medicine, you know, you have to hit a level of, of, of p is less than or equal to 0.5. So, my first question is, you know, what do you think about that? And do you think that that this indicates that, that your data were weaker than uh, many people think? Uh, and then, after you've asked that, if you wouldn't mind, answer that. So okay. the
6: standard economics is 0.05, just like it is in any other science. Um, but we also report, we call it marginally significant for things that are up to 0.1. Obviously, the lower, the better, right? Because this is an error rate. So everything we report is, you know, it's one star if it's 0.1, it's two stars if it's 0.05, and three stars if it's point. And we allow the reader to make their own conclusions. So uh, many of the results, uh, in fact, on the lower level uses of force, are all extraordinarily significant because we have a lot of data on the shootings. We provide everything there, but if if it's not about weakness because it was zero, right? There are no racial differences in 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 the in the in the police shootings, and so that's that is what it is. And we report the ninety-five percent confidence interval. So I think we're extraordinarily forthcoming on, on that piece.
5: Okay, thank you. Um, so, can I just read you a short? And paragraph. next time,
6: don't 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 buy anything. Just, just email me; I'll send them to you for free. I'm really <laughs> I, the, most, the, the saddest thing is that you paid the University of Chicago Press any money. But we'll get we'll, we'll, we'll. <laughs> it. Mean,
5: I didn't know how else to get a hold of the copy. Okay, so uh, a very interesting paragraph. It, it reads: "The importance of our results for racial inequality in America is unclear." it is plausible that racial differences in lower level uses of force are simply a distraction and movements such as Black Lives Matter should seek solutions within their own communities rather than changing the behaviors of police and other external forces. Uh, When I read that, that kind of amazed me, sort of blew me away. I wondered if you would expand on on, on what your thinking is there.
6: Well I would like you to read the next sentence. Uh, I don't remember the paper, but I, I think if this, what I was doing there was was basically saying it's it's we don't know, right? And so there is one theory that is A, and there's another theory that is B. I was not pushing a or B. Um, but the the, you know, in other words, I was almost using that as um, a straw man that I didn't think any reasonable person would believe. But to go on to be, which is like, hey, these are real issues that we need to bring policy to bear on. Some people think that these lower level uses of force aren't a big deal. I don't believe that. But I guess given we haven't experimentally validated that, that it's plausible. And so I left both hypotheses on the table.
0: That was Harvard economics professor Roland Fryer, Jr. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.